The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for talk uh, for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research polls for and designs research-based media and message strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling company, go to Facebook.com front slash Bannon dash communications dash research. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you who are watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now you can watch the show by going to the link periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Today on Deadline DC, we'll discuss pandemic policy in the first half hour and presidential politics in the second. Our first guest uh today is Dr. Bob Bollinger from John Hopkins University. Our guests for the provocative progressive political panel uh, in the second half hour are Kimberly Scott, publisher of Demlist, and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Our guest in this first half hour is Dr. Bob Bollinger. Uh, he is the Raj and Kamala Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds joint appointments in the International Health School at John Hopkins, uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and in, the and in Community Public Health at the John Hopkins School of Nursing. He is the founding director of the Center for Clinical Global Health Education, the center is doing a lot of COVID-19 related work in the United States and beyond. The website is maine.ccghe.net. That's maine.ccghe.net. And their Facebook page is facebook.com ccghe. Uh, Dr. Bollinger, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome, Brad. Let's start with this. Uh, the uh, where are we right now in the United States uh, with COVID nineteen? I guess, and maybe you can explain this. There were slightly uh, fewer uh, reported cases uh, yesterday uh, than there were the day before. Are we uh, getting anywhere near to flattening the curve? Well, I think, uh, Brad. I think you know. Uh, we probably have flattened the curve already. I think people just don't realize that because if we hadn't implemented the strategies we did, we'd be in a much uh, worse place than we are now. I think we're 
peaking uh, in many parts of the country. In other parts of the country, you know, particularly in some of the rural communities, uh, the rates are starting to go up. So, you know, the United States is a big place. It's a diverse place with many epidemics, if you will, in, in different parts of the country. So I think overall, the, you know, the big cities like uh, New York and Baltimore and Boston and, and Los Angeles, um, Seattle, Chicago, those places are um, look like they're peaking, but they're certainly uh, plateauing. They're not really, I don't think, uh, convincingly declining at this point. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, recently, uh, and uh, the Trump administration, uh, including the Secretary of State Ma, uh, Mike Pompeo and the President yesterday in a town hall on the Fox News Channel, uh, suggested uh, that the uh, COVID-19 virus was developed in a lab uh, in China. Uh, is this a man-made lab or is it, uh, is it naturally developed? I don't think there's any uh, evidence to suggest it's anything other than a... Uh naturally occurring mutation in an animal virus. These have been happening for a long time. We've, this is the third COVID virus that's jumped from animals to humans in the last 20 years. So there's no reason to think that's not what happened this time. Okay. Uh, tell us, uh, what is the status of uh, testing uh, in the United States? Uh, there's, I, I, have a, I have no idea. How many tests have been done in the United States? Do you know? Well, I mean, it's hard to know if you know, exactly, because um, it really depends on um, the places doing the test reporting their numbers. And, uh, and we don't have a centralized system for tracking any kind of health care uh, in the United States, much less testing like this. But it looks like uh, we've ramped up to probably about 7 million or more tests already. Um, we certainly um, need to do a lot more, but, uh, but that's roughly where we are at the moment. And I imagine that some states are probably doing better testing than others. Uh, let's, uh, you know, it seems to me that you brought up an interesting point about the central, the lack of centralized reporting data. Shouldn't this be a situation should the federal government uh, should be doing the testing and keeping track of it. It just seems to me every state and even every city uh, government has its own testing program. And in my, my guess is in some places it's probably pretty good and others it's pretty horrible. Uh, isn't there a need for some sort of national uh, you know, testing program as opposed to letting each state and city do it? Well, I think uh, it's like a lot of healthcare in the United States, um, whether it be testing for COVID or any other kind of testing. A lot of it's uh, decentralized and, and privatized in the United States. The, the challenge we have is not just uh, providing equal distribution, if you will, of access to all healthcare, including COVID testing around the country, but also centralizing how the data can be analyzed. So right now, the CDC, for example, relies on data that's, that's fed to them from the different states. But it's not clear that those states are getting all the private uh, data that's being you know, collected from private laboratories. Um, and and I, that's just a function of the fact that we have a very decentralized system around the United States. Okay. Uh, what, you know, what exactly should, you know, I mean, to be realistic, um, is the testing that's being done now, is that adequate or not? Well, it's, it's not, not even close to being adequate, if you ask me, to what we need to kind of move forward um, with our 
society, economy, schools, uh, we really have to ramp up testing uh, much more than we have. I mean, when we were uh, at the beginning of this epidemic and even now, because we had limited testing, we could only offer it to, we had to prioritize that testing, right? So we prioritized it as we should have to the sickest patients, to the healthcare workers, people on the front lines, because we needed to protect them and care for the people that were sickest, the ones with symptoms. But if we're really gonna get a handle on this, we've gotta expand testing far beyond just those who ended up in hospitals. We've gotta be able to test their contacts, we've gotta test their family members, we've gotta scale up testing, particularly in communities that are hit really hard and, and uh, situations that are hit hard, like nursing facilities, prisons, homeless shelters. We've gotta be testing everybody whether they have symptoms or not. We don't have the testing right now to, to accomplish that. Okay, we're going to break now, but when we come back from the break, we'll have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our guest, Dr. Bob Bollinger from John Hopkins University School of Medicine. We'll be right back after these messages. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We are discussing pandemic policy in this half hour with Dr. Bob Bollinger from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Bollinger has more than 39 years of experience in international public health, clinical research, and education dealing with global priorities as uh, malaria, tuberculosis, uh, and of course, COVID-19. I didn't think I'd live to see the day, Dr. Bollinger, when uh, good common sense uh, became a partisan political issue. Uh, but uh, several Republican governors uh, egged on by the president uh, have started to open up their economies. Uh, Georgia led the way, opening uh, uh, gyms, tattoo parlors, uh, restaurants and theaters uh, a week ago. Um, Other states, uh, mainly in the South, are following suit. Am I crazy or is this incredibly premature uh, to be reopening the economy? Well, we'll certainly know in about three to four weeks uh, because um, in those places that have relaxed some of these um, measures, we'll, you know, we might expect to see big bumps and increases in new infections. So, I mean, part of um, what we're trying to do, I think, all over the world, not just the United States, is, you know, this is an unprecedented situation. And so people are trying and, and governments and, and all sorts of um, um, uh, groups are trying different strategies for, for not only uh, uh, getting us moving forward economically, but, but from a public health point of view. And, and I think we're just going to learn from each other. Some of this, hopefully, we'll, some of the lessons we learn will be good lessons, and we may learn some hard lessons about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I think we'll learn that from the fact that some some states and some municipalities are, are going about about it differently than others. Um, but we will certainly see that one thing about this uh, this uh, virus is not going to go away. So we'll certainly find out pretty quickly whether or not these strategies are effective or or, or cause more problems. What I hear you saying, Dr. Bollinger, is that we're probably going to learn the hard way uh, in places like Georgia. Is that true? We might. We might very well. We'll see. Um, I think, you know, the epidemics... Um, 
going to affect different communities in different ways. Um, you know, a lot of it depends on, um, you know, we've seen, for example, in, in places like New York, where people live in much more close proximity that in nursing facilities or in large uh, public buildings or in large multi-generational families, for example, the virus can spread very quickly in, in a closed group of people. Uh, so you might expect in situations like that around the country, that's going to continue to be the case. In other communities that are more rural or if people are more spread out, it may not spread quite as fast. They may be able to tolerate, uh, you know, some of these um, these um, uh, changes in mitigation strategy more easily. But we'll have to wait and see. I'm, I'm, I, I, I know for sure this virus isn't going to go away until we have a vaccine or something really dramatic happens. Well, that raises an interesting issue because I remember seeing uh, Dr. Fauci uh, last week saying that we could have another occurrence uh, next fall during flu season. Is that true? Oh, we certainly could. Um, you know, we could have multiple waves. I mean, this this could be just a series of, you know, stops and starts uh, where we maybe mitigate and drop a little bit and then we, we release, you know, loosen the strategies and things come back again and we have to do it again. We could be stopping and starting um, and uh, multiple times over the next, you know, six, six to 12 months until we hopefully have a vaccine. Uh, Dr. Fauci also said last week that uh, he was encouraged uh, by the uh, development of a drug, the name of which I can't remember, uh, that could be a uh, possible antidote to the uh, COVID-19. What can you say about that? Yeah, the drug's called Remdesivir. It's uh, made by this company called Gilead. Um, and the drug has been, uh, I haven't, I don't know that they've released all the data yet. Uh, all I've seen is what uh, Dr. Fauci and others have said about it. Um, it seems to be, uh, show, have, have some benefit for people that are sick in reducing the, the time they have to spend in the hospital and perhaps has some impact on reducing their risk of death, which would be really important. Um, the drug is designed to fight um, this virus, it attacks the virus and shuts it down. Um, and, and so theoretically, uh, we're hoping that uh, it should work. And the preliminary data looks, looks promising. But remember, right now, this drug is an IV drug. Um, so right now, I think there are, the, the company is trying very, very quickly to get you know, as many uh, doses of, the, of this drug out to around the world, around the United States and the rest of the world, to places that need it the most. And, and we presumably, with a limited supply, they want to target the people who are at greatest risk of, of serious illness, so probably hospitalized patients. But, you know, it's just, it's going to be um, a task to kind of get this drug up and out to the people that need it as quickly as possible. But I know that uh, that's a high priority for the company and certainly for all of us in, who take care of patients. We've got to offer some hope, Brad. I mean, this is uh, particularly those at high risk. Um, you know, the, the death rate is really t terrible. So anything we can do to mitigate that will really help. Uh, let's say uh, John Hopkins uh, University is in Maryland. Uh, if you were talking to the governor of uh, Maryland, Larry Hogan, what would you uh, advise him about uh, reopening the Maryland economy? Well, Governor Hogan, fortunately, has uh, got a lot of good advice, and he's, um, I think, been listening. Um, I'm not sure all the governors have done the same, but he's certainly been listening to the the experts, and I have a lot of confidence in the people that are, and I, I know some of the people that are advising him. Um, and so I think he's um, he's looking at the data, and he's he's going to be cautious and and probably 
um, do things in a very systematic, stepwise fashion. I'm sure he's looking to see what's happening around the country and other uh, municipalities to see what impact um, the, you know, uh, some of those policies have on their own communities. But I'm actually, um, um, you know, I'm, I have some confidence that he's going to, you know, continue to listen to the experts. Um, and he's certainly getting good, good advice, at least the best advice we can. Look, you know, all of us who are advising on this sort of thing are learning. This is a, this is a, uh, an infection that's been around for less than four months, you know. So we're going to learn and we're going to continue to gather the data and give the best advice we can. And we hope that the the policymakers like uh, Governor Hogan continue to listen to, uh, to the experts and those that understand the science. Okay, you know, it, it seems to me there is this tension now. Uh, the gross national product of the company of the country dropped almost 5% in the first quarter of this year. And many people are suffering uh, that, you know, lots of people, you know, we've had like 30 million uh, unemployment claims in the last couple of months. And I can see why people are eager to reopen the economy. Uh, and, you know, certainly there are protests all across the country about <clears throat> the con. What would you tell those people who were so quick, who, who want to open the economy and try to get back to some degree of economic normalcy as quickly as possible? Well, look, uh, it's important uh, to do that as quickly as possible and as safely as possible, because, you know, the, the communities are disproportionately affected by this virus. Uh, that are marginalized, that are uh, disenfranchised, um, are the same communities are, that are disproportionately effect, affected by a lot of this economic challenge that we have, right? So right. Um, it's the same communities that are, that has, so we have to balance um, these things as best we can. Um, and I think we have to come up with strategies to do that. I think there's a path forward if we can get much, much more testing, if we can test and identify people uh, very rapidly in, in all the communities that need the testing, if we can get those people to isolate for, for 14 days until they recover, we can get all their contacts tested. We can uh, do that in a very, very comprehensive, systematic way in the communities that need it. Um, then I think we have a strategy for moving the economy forward and, and helping those people, those communities. Thank you, Dr. Bollinger. Thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, I know you're probably very busy, so uh, we'll let you get back to your work. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after these messages. Back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Every Monday, uh, I write a column on Campaign 2020 for The Hill. Today's column is about Michelle Obama as Joe Biden's running mate. I can dream, can I? A new Showtime documentary on Michelle Obama airs beginning Wednesday. The film recounts the political promotional tour for her memoir, Becoming, which has sold more than 10 million copies. The avalanche of hype about the show will kick off another round of speculation about our future in national politics and even the possibility that the former first lady will run for vice president on a ticket with Joe Biden. Biden faces many challenges in his tough fight to deny Donald Trump another term as president. But these challenges would be easier, easier to overcome if the former first lady is his running mate. 
political scientists often say that the power of the presidency is the power to persuade. Constitutionally, presidents have limited power and their authority is constrained by the co-equal legislative and judicial branches of the federal government. The success of presidents is a function of their ability to convince people to do things that they really don't need or want to do. It will be difficult for Biden to convince Michelle Obama to run for vice president. But, the Dem but if the Democratic nominee succeeded in getting her to make the race, it would be a major coup for him and proof he has the powers of persuasion that are necessary to be, be a successful president. The presumptive Democratic nominee said that he would take the first lady as his running mate in a heartbeat. But in her best-selling memoir, Becoming uh, the first former first lady wrote she has no interest in ever running for office. Michelle Obama has made it clear she does not want to want the job of vice president, but it would be but it might be difficult for her to say no to the presumptive Democratic nominee if he came to her and said that her presence on the ticket would make or break Donald Trump as president uh, and give her an opportunity to to restore the legacy of the Obama presidency. Michelle Obama has many reasons to avoid partisan political conflict, but she also has plenty of reasons to engage fully in the 2000 campaign against Donald Trump. She is more interested in promoting causes like nutrition and vote by mail than she is in pursuing partisan politics. But Partisan politics is a nasty way of intruding upon the causes she holds so dear. Much of the Trump presidency has been devoted to reversing the achievements of the Obama administration, especially noteworthy have been the Trump administration's attempt to dismantle the Affordable Care Act and to undermine the Obama environmental initiatives to fight climate change. The coronavirus crisis has accentuated the concern about health care that already existed before the pandemic struck. Neither the president nor his party have a plan to provide health care coverage to people in dire need of it. Joe Biden has a plan which would significantly extend the reach of Obamacare, which is the signature achievement of the Obama presidency and a cause which is near and dear to Michelle Obama's heart. The president has even attempted to reverse Michelle Obama's campaign as first lady to improve nutrition for elementary and high school students and to provide healthy food for everyone. Michelle Obama has become a champion of vote by mail, which the president and his party vehemently oppose. The conventional wisdom about a vice presidential pick is that the choice should do no harm. None of the rumored Biden choices for his running mate would do any harm. But why settle for no harm when you can do a lot of good with your selection? An April national survey for The Economist by YouGov.com showed that Michelle Obama was much more intensely popular than any of the other possible Democratic vice presidential nominees. Three out of every four, 73 percent, Democratic primary voters said they had a very favorable opinion of the former first lady. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren came in a distant second at 47 percent. There is much to be said for Michelle Obama's interest into, entrance into the political, political arena. 
She has been chosen twice by the Gallup poll as a, America's most admired woman. A no-drama Obama on the Democratic national ticket would be a welcome respite from the daily Trump administration circus sideshow. There was hardly any hint of wrongdoing during the Obama years in the White House, and that would offer a vivid Democratic contrast to the scandal-ridden Trump regime. What would you get? Uh, what you would get if Biden uh, asked and Obama accepts as a strong campaigner with a commitment to her own values and a desire to preserve and even extend the Obama legacy. What more can you ask for in a running mate anywhere? Our guest today on the progressive, provocative progressive political panel uh, are uh, Kimberly Scott, who is the publisher of Demlist. Uh, Demlist is a daily political column dedicated to educating and informing the public about policy and politics. Sign up for the column at www.demlist.com. The Twitter handle is The Demlist. Joining Kim on the panel is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked on get out the vote operations for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform and philanthropic efforts for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Okay, well, there's been all sorts of news in the last week on the uh, Biden search for a running mate. Uh, last week, he uh, appointed a vetting panel for vice presidential pick. It was headed by former Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd and Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. Uh, last week, um, a group of uh, Wall Street uh, people who have given money to the Democratic Party uh, made a strong statement uh, to uh, Joe Biden uh, against putting Elizabeth Warren on the panel, which is probably good reason to put her on the panel and uh, put her on the ticket, in my opinion. And also, uh, over the weekend, we had another group of Democratic donors who started a draft Michelle Obama for vice presidential movement. So first of all, Kim, let me start with you. Uh, do you think there's any chance that if Joe Biden went uh, and told Michelle Obama that her presence as his running mate could make or break Donald Trump's presidency, do you think she'd accept? I don't. <clears throat> and it's not because I wouldn't love to see it happen. Uh, and there are certainly more than one draft Michelle uh, campaigns going on and have been for the last year. Um, but if you read her book, Becoming, which I highly recommend, it is a deeply personal novel that is that actually doesn't talk about politics. It is centered around her role as and um, in, in her family's role of her her career rise and the things that are most important to her. Um, it I just the only circumstances under which I could see Michelle Obama uh, accepting is if the polls shifted. And Trump was leading consistently by five to 10 points. And that's not the case right now. You know, uh, Biden has made the decision to pick a female running mate. Um, there is a, uh, a long list of 
qualified candidates, not necessarily all everyone's preferences. Um, but I think she would step in only if the tides were reversed. Okay. Uh, Mark, you want to weigh in on Michelle Obama? I think, uh, and first of all, thanks for having me, Brad and uh, Kim. It's nice to see and talk to you after talking to you uh, on the phone so many times. Uh, it's one of the, the few benefits of this situation. Um, but, uh, no, I think Kim, as per usual, makes a really strong point uh, regarding the position that the race is in. Um, and I do think, Brad, I, you know, I read your piece before today, but just hearing you read it again, you know, it, you brought up some interesting points I had not thought about in the forefront. I just automatically thought, oh, she's, you know, said that she wouldn't really be interested. But then you think about the fact that, you know, President Trump has had this unhealthy obsession with undoing anything that President Obama did for the good of the country, whether, like you said, it was the Affordable Care Act or the climate initiatives that he has put forth, like the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, anything that the man has touched, um, you know, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, so it, I think it does bring up an interesting point about if Michelle Obama were to be on the ticket, she would personally be involved in making sure that uh, Vice President Biden defeats Donald Trump. And once she was in office, she could help him work on restoring and building upon the Obama legacy. Um, so I, th I think you never say never, especially in politics and in government. But um, I think you're right. You know, both of you that, you know, if I was a betting man, I, I would probably bet against it. Um, but, uh, man, you're right. She would just absolutely just be a rock star on that ticket. And anything she ran for is, you know, she's absolutely just insanely popular, the most admired woman um, year after year. And I, I think she is very smart and prudent and would be a great person to be on the top of the ticket with Vice President Biden at this moment right now uh, in our country. Okay, we're going to go to break now, but when we get back from break, we'll have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our provocative progressive political panel with the publisher of Demlist, Kimberly Scott, and progressive political activist Mark Gormaldi. We'll be back right after these messages, so don't go away. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Pat Bannon. We're here for the provocative progressive political panel. Joining us on the panel today uh, is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi and the publisher of Demless, Kimberly Scott. Uh, I urge you uh, the Twitter handle for Demlist is the Demlist, all one word. I urge you to uh, take a look at it. Uh, it is a great way to keep track of uh, democratic policy and politics during campaign 2020. I could personally attest uh, to that as well. Yes, this is true. This is very true. That's right. Uh, let's start this. Uh, it seems to me that during the uh, uh, during the last couple months, since it's been clear that Joe Biden has done going to be the Democratic presidential nominee, or is the presumptive nominee, as he's referred to in the press these days. Uh, he has uh, handled uh, a couple of things uh, well and a couple of things not so well. Um, 
uh, one of the things that's clouded Joe Biden's candidacy uh, is the charges of sexual harassment brought against him by a former staffer named Tara Reid. Now, uh, Biden was on Morning Joe on MSNBC uh, last week. Uh, he unequivocally denied uh, the, uh, the incident. Uh, you know, but it, it, the interview raised an interesting point. In the past, Joe Biden has said uh, that any time there's an ac- uh, uh, accusation like this, uh, Americans should presume that the woman who's making the complaint is right. Uh, and when he was asked about that statement, uh, uh, when he was on Morning Joe last week, he had trouble um, explaining uh, he trouble explaining that. So uh, let me ask the panel this. When there's uh, now, I, I think Biden handled the situation pretty well. Uh, and apparently, uh, since he did the interview last Monday, I guess, uh, there have been uh, questions uh, about Terry's cl- uh, claim, uh, which have, you know, created some doubt about her uh, charges. But, you know, how generally in politics, how should the media handle a complaint like this? Uh, Because it's a very tricky business. Kim? You know, Brad, I think this is actually a part of a, a larger journey that began three years ago with the Me Too movement and that the narrative is still being written. Anytime there is an allegation of sexual assault, by or against a man or a woman, um, it should be heard. But in this case, since it was 27 years ago and Biden is no longer in the Senate, then it's going to be tried in the court of public opinion. Uh, he, I think he handled it well, perhaps not stellar. Uh, and and uh, just hours, just ago, hours ago, there were some developments actually, actually in, the, in, the, in the interview. Biden asked, asked, said that he has written to the Secretary of the Senate and asked that any records from that period of time uh, be researched and revealed with regard to potential complaint by Tara Reid or someone else. Uh, now, this morning, apparently, uh, the legal counsel for the Senate said that the Secretary of the Senate does not have the authority to release that because under the law, it's confidential. Then in turn, Biden's attorney has asked, could that information, if those records are there, be at least to released to the complainant? So they're playing it day by day. They're playing, I think, you know, Biden's playing it well. But it's, again, it's going to be up to each individual on not only whether they think this is a believable story, but how it weighs in their perspective in voting for Biden as the Democratic nominee. And then, of course, there is the Biden versus Trump, which, as we all know, is a whole nother level of history. Let me ask you, uh, how should the media deal with a claim like this? I mean, obviously, a woman who has a complaint against a politician or anybody else should be heard. Um, And it has been. I mean, there's been quite a bit of conversation about Tara Reid and Joe Biden in the last few weeks. Uh, 
but it also appears that her story um, has problems. Uh, she said she filed a sexual harassment uh, complaint against Joe Biden, uh, and then she said she filed a complaint, but it didn't refer uh, to the unsavory incident that she uh, said had occurred uh, originally. Uh, so how does the media balance the competing claims? I think that they need to focus on the facts, also be careful to not make this, you know, about some sort of, uh, you know, gotcha story or just looking at whatever the latest um, unsubstantiated uh, claims are. For instance, there was an ABC reporter this weekend who seemed to have a single source story about allegedly that um, the, uh, f the failed Senate uh, campaign uh, in Delaware, Christine O'Donnell, had had previously her she came out and said her niece uh was making an accusation against uh vice president biden from 2008 and then two tweets down uh in the reporter's you know uh thread it said it was discovered that vice president biden had not even attended the event that he was recovering from surgery and had to do it by video so it was just an example it seems anyway of a reporter trying to be the first on a story and not doing their due diligence and I also think that so far, unfortunately, some of the media has covered this like they have covered the Hillary Clinton email story where they're just, you know, trying to throw things at the wall and see how many clicks they can get instead of treating this with the sensitivity it should be treated with, which is to hear the complaint because it is a serious accusation. Um, and for far too long, women have been uh, muzzled on these issues. Um, but I also think that you have to be accurate in this reporting. Um, and right now, there's a lot of campaign resources that news networks have already budgeted for, and they have them out looking for stories to be on the campaign. Well, guess what? There's no actual physical campaign right now. So right now you have a lot of reporters who are looking for stories and I think are looking to talk about this and, you know, to, to get clicks. And I think that's a very dangerous proposition. Um, I do think it's fair to talk about the inconsistencies in Tara Reid's story, the fact that she previously praised Biden for years, um, including his work on, um, you know, sexual assault, victim advocacy, um, and then also initially said that uh, he touched her shoulders and made her feel comfortable and then changed the claim to sexual assault. So I think there's a lot there to be examined. Um, and there has been a lot of reporting on it. And I think the vice president has been consistent in saying that it never happened. Uh, that's all for today for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, thanks to my guest, Dr. Bob Bollinger, uh, Kim Scott, the publisher of Demlist, and progressive political activist Mark Romaldi. I'm here every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time in Portis Willing Creek Don't Rock. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay home, and don't drink this acceptance. I don't care what the principal says. <laughs>